Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to everybody else. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. I like to um, begin class by asking you to talk to each other. I know some people are like, wait, I'm coming to a meditation class. I don't want to talk to strangers. But it's a core part of Buddhism to develop uh, community. It's called refuge and sangha. Sangha is the word for uh, community. And over and over in the Buddha's life, he put emphasis on the importance of developing wise friendships and associating with people who have um, the intention to be kind and compassionate and develop wisdom. And um, uh, sometimes he puts it as coarsely as avoid fools. And don't, don't hang out with anybody who's behaving foolishly and uh, make sure that you uh, develop friendships with people who are behaving wisely or at least trying to. And so meditation class like this is a place of a gathering, you know, in our uh, a gathering where people are at least trying. Hopefully most of us are trying to uh, develop some wisdom and become more kind, more compassionate, forgiving all of these uh, Buddhist principles that we're practicing. So um, I'd like to begin by asking you to break into small groups and try to talk to some people you don't know, especially if you're here for the first time or first couple times, rather than just talking to your homie that you're with, uh, you know, like turn towards somebody you don't know and introduce yourself. Uh, at home, I put you in um, these breakout groups on Zoom. And, you know, there's a tendency, I don't know, maybe... 15 or 20 percent of you don't join the breakout groups and of course you know it's all you know consensual you get to do you know you cannot talk to each other if you don't want but it's part of our practice and maybe it's just as important as our meditation practice it's our communication practice it's mindfulness of of connection and maybe you feel self-conscious about you know talking to people you don't know but that's part of what we're learning is how do we be with both what's comfortable and uncomfortable. So I encourage you to, to do it. Um, the topic for tonight is uh, how do you feel about your birthday? You know, reflecting for a moment on, you know, that thing that happens every year on the day that you were born. And I um, mean, is it exciting for you? Is it some, I feel like some people have things around their birthdays where it's almost like the holidays where it's like, oh, there's too much pressure and I don't know who to, you know, I'm, I don't get enough attention or I get too much attention or how do you feel about, about your birthday? Is it a thing for you? Do you avoid it? Do you, you know, you can tell these strangers, um, you know, the truth about how you, how you relate to your birthday. I made that the topic tonight for, because today's my birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, I like it. <laughs> Obviously. Um, but that's your topic to speak to each other about your birthday. What is what's it like for you when you kind of are coming up on your birthday and when you celebrate your birthday? And uh, that's that's the topic. So go ahead and start talking and I'll open these rooms.
We'll have a period of meditation. I'll offer some instructions, guided meditation. Starting with finding a way to sit that feels comfortable, upright. Take a moment, adjust, settle. Allow your eyes to be gently closed. Allow your body to be as relaxed as it can be, releasing tension around the face, jaw, shoulders, chest. Breathing in, bringing mindfulness, awareness to the sensations that your breath creates. Breathing out. Soften your belly, release. Soften any unnecessary tension in the stomach. We practice, primarily we practice mindfulness, insight, vipassana meditation. Present time, non-judgmental awareness that leads to transformation of our relationship to pleasure and pain. Leads to the understanding of impermanence. And this practice is done best with an attitude of friendliness. It works best when we are kind to our experience, to our mind, our body. Finding that internal balance of not too much effort where you're stressing out about meditation, but also not so relaxed that you're just napping or spacing out. An attitude of loving kindness is goodwill towards ourselves. May I be at ease. May I be happy. May I be free from all of the unnecessary sufferings. Helps to also generate the same attitude towards each other, the people you're sitting next to, the people you were just speaking with in the breakout sessions, the small groups. May you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be free. Establishing and trying to maintain friendliness towards ourselves and each other. Kindness and compassion towards ourselves and each other. And then directing 
our primary attention to the sensations the breath creates, mindfulness of breathing. Let your awareness be receptive. No need to lean into what the breath is doing. Just relax into your body. Awareness receives the sensations. The Buddha's instruction was something like breathing in one knows, I'm breathing in. Breathing out one knows, I'm breathing out. What helps you to know the breath? Where do you feel it? What sensations are created in your body with each breath? In the belly, the chest, the nostrils. What's the difference between the in-breath and the out-breath? Bringing this interest, focused attention to the breath. Letting everything else recede to the background, thoughts and sounds and other sensations continue. Not trying to stop the mind from thinking. But we are trying to ignore the mind, the thoughts, let them be in the background. So we give our primary foreground of our attention is on the breath, thoughts in the background. Of course, the attention gets drawn back into thinking, but we can disengage. We can choose to gently, with kindness, return to the breath. Without judgment, without stress about it, just gently return, start over.
mindfulness has a quality of curiosity, interest, investigating. Where am I feeling the breath? What's the beginning, middle, and end? What's the texture, temperature? Can I soften my stomach as I exhale? Or is there a tightness, a hardness that seems to always be there? Even just this initial instruction can lead to so much wisdom, transformation, teaching us about the impermanent nature of all things as the breath is constantly changing, coming and going, arising, passing. Teaching us about the impersonal nature of this body that we get so identified with that we take so personally but that breathes all by itself If you're new to this kind of practice, you can stick with the breath. The Buddha's instructions expand, encouraging us to become more inclusive, open to the whole body. 
all of the sensations, the emotions felt in the heart, the belly, open to the sense doors, the sounds, the smells, tastes, images, as well as the thoughts, observing, bringing this kind awareness to what your mind is up to, plans and memories, hopes and fears. Mindfulness becomes completely holistic, inclusive of our whole being, all of the emotions felt in the body, Present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness towards what your body's feeling, your heart's experiencing, what your mind is processing. Awareness receives, knows what's happening moment to moment.
bringing awareness to what you experience as pleasant, what feels good in this moment, if anything. Pleasant thoughts, emotions, sensations. Being aware of the impermanent nature of pleasure, how it appears and sustains and dissolves. And our tendency to crave for our experience to be more pleasant than it is or the pleasure to last longer than it does. Identifying how much of our unhappiness comes from clinging and craving. Seeing that directly in our meditation. Investigating what's unpleasant when something painful, the body becomes uncomfortable. Rather than moving away from it, bring your attention directly to the pain. What's unpleasant? Where's the center of the discomfort? Where's the edges? Breathing into it, softening around it.
the more we turn towards our experience and see what is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, more unnatural compassion arises for our own pain rather than continuing to resist it. We learn to soften to it, to accept it, to have mercy, and eventually compassion for ourselves as well as others. The more clearly we see directly and understand impermanence, the more we start to let go, stop clinging. You see how impersonal this tendency to crave for pleasure is. We stop obeying it, stop satisfying every thought, every craving, every clinging, just observing them as they arise and pass. This leads to more and more sense of happiness, well-being, ease, contentment.
before I get into talking about myself. Um, any questions about the meditation instructions or how to practice this form of Buddhist meditation? Clear enough? In some ways it's really simple, pay attention to the impermanent nature of everything that arises in our bodies and hearts and minds. Identify what is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and see our relationship to pleasure, our tendency to cling. Buddha's second noble truth, human suffering is created by clinging, craving, attachment. Investigate that, see, is that true in your direct experience? The end of suffering often is as simple as letting go. And it's so simple to say, let go. <laughs> you're attached to something, you're suffering about it, let it go. But um, not so easy to let go. Our, our human tendency is, you know, we don't have that much control, actually. That's kind of can be frustrating when you start meditating. And you, you know, like, oh, I'm really attached to this thing and I should let it go. Or I'm really resistant to some part of my reality and I need to accept it. And you're telling in your mind, you're like, I should accept this or I should let this go or I should have compassion, but you can't yet. Um, so there's some humility necessary. There's the instructions. See it, try to let it go. See it, try to meet it with compassion. Try not to take it personal. It's not your, you know, just as the body breathes all by itself and the heart beats all by itself and the mind thinks all by itself and all of these emotions that were so incarnated as I am angry, afraid, lonely, whatever it is. Uh, sometimes in mindfulness, you get that experience of like, oh, this is just the human mind. It's the condition. Yes, it's my experience, but it's not that personal. If that makes sense. Doesn't really make sense, right? It's personal, but it's not that personal. It's part of having taken birth. So I'm going to talk about taking birth tonight. <laughs> 52 years ago today, 1971, I took birth. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the experiences in my early life. I'm going to try to make this applicable to the Dharma. Um, some of the dukkha, some of the experiences in my early life that led me to the Dharma, to Buddhism, to meditation. Uh, 35 years ago, I started a meditation practice. So now at 17 years old, so I've spent the last 35 years practicing Buddhism. And uh, so I'm going to reflect on that a little, a little bit tonight. But I think um, I didn't tell her I was going to do this, but I think it only would be fair to ask my mom to say something since she's here on Zoom. Uh, since she's the one that actually did all the work 30, 50, <laughs> 52 years ago. Um, let me see what happens if I spotlight you and then I go like this. Okay, there you are. Hey, Patty. So, um, mom, if you could <laughs> unmute yourself. And there's just for, just for a couple minutes, some reflections on having to deal with me for the last 52 years. 
<laughs> the little on the left where your microphone is. I there found it. Okay. Um, Can you hear her? Well, let's see. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> I'm going to reflect a little bit on the, um, you know, my life and the early suffering that led me to start meditating. And then, you know, these last 35 years of practice and some of what I've experienced in the Dharma. And so you could just reflect for a little bit on, you know, what it was like for you in, in, in kind of being part of this process with me and, and your own process over these last 52 years. Okay, well, I can start out by getting very personal, and that is that you were really the only um, pregnancy that was planned. Um, and looked really looked forward to by both your dad and and me. Um, I thought you were a wonderful child and um unfortunately um you know by the time you were three i was a single mom and by the time you were five you had twin brother and sister and within two years i was a single mom of four so it was difficult um for me and um Difficult for you in that second relationship with your dad moving away and a stepfather that was, I thought, going to be my uh, soulmate and didn't turn out to be. So, yeah, you had a reaction that was very... Um, hard for you and um going back and forth to new mexico and and santa cruz um throughout your schooling years um and then the i don't know um i'm just so incredibly grateful to have you as my son because you have been such a teacher, not only from a young age with your difficulties and working through that, but then as a, uh, when you got involved in meditation and you became my teacher and have been for the last 25 years. And that has been um, a saving grace for me in so many ways. So I'm just um, extremely grateful to have you as my son in my life. And I love you so much. Thanks, Mama. So sorry for putting you on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> a little hard. But I love you. And thank that's exactly, that was perfect. Thank you for doing that. It's not, you know, I can't just talk about it without inviting 
you into it. So, right. well, I don't want to get too specific, but I think it's, I love you. Love you. Happy too. birthday. Thank you. Now I don't know how to change it back. Let's see. Okay, I think that worked. There we go. By um, because of the situation, you know, circumstances of my early life, um, you know, some of the things my mom was talking about divorces and single mom and addiction in the family and, uh, you know, wonderfully um, spiritual, but pretty narcissistic father who uh, wasn't really very available. Um, I became suicidal by the time I was five and um, had like suicidal ideation and, and didn't really want to exist. And part of that for me was that I was raised, both my mom and my dad were Buddhist meditators. Uh, my dad had been practicing Buddhism since before I was born and Hinduism. My dad was of that, you know, kind of like everything from India is good and everything from Israel, not that good. Um, you know, even though he was raised Jewish and he was just like, but you know, these Western religions don't make sense, but the Eastern, so the sort of Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, he was into, so I was raised with that and I was raised with reincarnation. So I was taught Buddhist kind of Hindu Indian philosophy from, from young and, and I was suffering. And, and, uh, so I thought reincarnation sounds great. You can just kill yourself and start over. <laughs> This is just a get out of jail freak card, right? Like you don't have to stick, you know, if this, if this is unpleasant, just, you know, roll the dice, get another life. And so like my, you know, my desire to not exist in the kind of situation I exist in, in that suicidal ideation for me, wasn't the sort of nihilism of like, I want to get rid of it forever. I was like, I just want to start over. Um, and I was five years old and, and then I started drink, do, drinking and doing drugs by the time I was like seven. And I was, you know, now, now I have an 11 year old and a 14 year old. And I look at them, I'm like, you guys getting high yet or what? <laughs> because I was, and they don't seem to be, you know, they not, not admitting it if they are, I don't think they are. But I, and I, I thought, sought escape from the suffering through drugs and alcohol uh, as a child. And by the time I was a you know, teenager, I was strung out. And um, I was speaking at a recovery meeting last night. And I, I kind of, you know, I've been abstinent for a long time, but I still feel like drugs and alcohol in some ways saved my life before they destroyed my life. Like they were a solution. I was self-medicating. I was, you know, it's not a very... Um, you know, it's a, it's a maladaptive strategy, as they say, but it got me through adolescence, you know, it got, it got me to not kill myself when I was a kid. Um, and it was fun. Fucking, you know, the, the other thing that happened for me is that I was born in 71, probably by 80, 81, I heard punk rock and punk rock was like, okay, cool. This is the sound of how I feel, <laughs> right? This is, this is the soundtrack of uh, of rebellion and of dissatisfaction. And, you know, for anybody who's wondering what, how, how can Buddhism and punk rock fit? Um, 
the Buddha's first noble truth, suffering exists, dissatisfaction is the status quo. Punk rock is the you know, soundtrack of suffering exists, dissatisfaction is, you know, we're, we're unhappy with the ignorance of the world. Um, so I heard that and I was like, okay, here's, there's some wisdom here. It's not sappy pop uh, delusion music. It's, it's uh, you know, it's reality music. This is what's really going on here. It's not a fucking love song. It's um, this world is filled with greed and hatred and delusion and let's do something about it is the core message of, of some of, you know, punk is big, but it's a big term for a lot of different things. But some of it, you know, that I was drawn to was that. And um, anyways, by the time I was 17, strung out, crack, injecting heroin, coke, uh, drinking alcoholically, in and out of juvenile hall. And um, I had, you know, I never meditated before. My dad was a meditator. Uh, my mom had gone to some meditation retreats, but wasn't meditating anymore during that time. Um, but I got desperate enough. And, you know, I know I sometimes have this, I think, bias or whatever. Like, if you're here, you must be desperate. <laughs> and I know that's not true for everybody. A lot of people come into meditation. And they're like, actually, my life's pretty good, but it could probably be better. Um, you know, um, and they, you know, let's, let's meditate. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm not making it. <laughs> I, I'm desperate. I'm so, and I had such an attitude about Buddhism because it was for the hippies and I was a punk and like, you know, like, it's so embarrassing. Like you're going to meditate. That's shameful. You know, like being a felon, that's okay. But being a meditator, that's like, that's terrible. Um, and there, there was nothing uh, in my subculture that supported spirituality uh, or, or even kindness on some level. Um, but I was sitting in juvie in, in 1988 at 17 years old, and my dad gave me a meditation instruction not that different than the one we did tonight. And, you know, pay attention to your breath investigate you know the in and out ignore your mind be present and it was the first time i really tried it and i was uh interested in trying it and and i had a you know so i couldn't do it very well as most of us when we first meditate it's not very easy but i got a taste of i saw what was happening here which was when i ignored my mind and i paid attention to my breath even just for a half a breath there was some relief there was a little bit you know, so much better to be in my body even though at the time i was detoxing i was incarcerated i had just had a suicide attempt like it wasn't pretty it wasn't like oh i'm so fucking peaceful <laughs> it was like that you know it's just it's better there's less suffering in present time awareness than there is in being in the future which is violence and prison and or in the past which is violence and addiction and so that present was was a bit better and i didn't have you know any big insights or anything but i i kind of I, it gave me some hope i think that that's my early experience of meditation was like there's hope here 
this is a, I'm hopeful that this practice might work if I um, and I also you know I started going to 12-step recovery and you know they we were giving a message that said like you know there's this god that's going to remove your cravings and your your defects of character and you're powerless and that like the 12 step stuff didn't make sense to me um where buddhism felt like this practical applicable thing i could do and they said well pray about it you know and i was like well i'll, I'll try i'll pray um Anyways, I don't want to bag on 12 step at the moment. Maybe I'll do that in a few minutes, but. I got sober. I was locked up for a few months that last time, 17, when I was uh, turned about 18. Um, I got out of this group home that I was in and. I spent the I spent a. I had that experience in that early where meditation was half fast and um, I would use it like in emergencies, <laughs> like practice mindfulness when I was overwhelmed with difficult emotion, fear, anger, then I would use mindfulness. It wasn't until, because I still had that experience, that idea that maybe, like in Buddhism, we talk about there's no external refuge. I didn't know that yet in my early, those first couple of years, I still thought that maybe the world could provide a refuge. If I had enough money, enough attention, enough, the right relationship, the right motorcycle, low rider, you know, the, the material things, I still, I really thought, you know, and I was like the whole, most of the people in the world thought, think, um, I thought maybe, uh, I didn't have to have a spiritual or a meditative solution that there could be a material one. But within a couple of years, uh, by the time I was 19, I went to my first meditation retreat. By the time I was 19, I got busted for graffiti. I was, um, I had a house full of stolen merchandise. I was associated with, I was sober. I was fist fighting. I was stealing. I was, you know, um, not how much had changed. I wasn't being ethical. I wasn't being honest. I wasn't being kind. I was meditating once in a while in my closet when I got stressed out enough. And then at 19, I got in some trouble and was just, uh, had the realization, this is the meditation, the only thing that's ever really worked. It's the only place I found any actual um, relief. I got the motorcycle stole some of it i got the stuff stole some of it <laughs> i've got i'm in a relationship not that's not very fun <laughs> um i'm hanging with the tough guys that's not very fun i'm not very happy um and so i went to a meditation retreat i went to my first meditation retreat three-day silent Buddhist meditation retreat with Jack Cornfield and Mary Orr in Santa Cruz mountains up by where I grew up. And um, I can remember on that first meditation retreat being like wanting to leave and feeling so looking for all the differences, all of the like, I'm the only young person here. I'm the only, you know, punker here. This is a bunch of old hippies. It's my dad's friends. Uh, fucking my life has come to this. Um, but also sitting on the cushion, 
trying to pay attention to my breath, trying to do the loving kindness, whatever instructions, continuing to feel like there's hope here. There's something here that does feel practical, feel, um, I wanted to leave the retreat. I think I even talked to them on like the second day. I was like, yeah, I'm not sure if this is for me. <laughs> my, you know, like my dad suggested it. I'm not sure that it's for me. And they're like, you know, hang in, listen to the lecture, listen to the Dharma talks. You know, if you need to go, you can go. But I, I stayed through those three days and then came out with a feeling of, um, of you know, a little bit more confidence of like, oh, I, I did that. I didn't talk to anybody for three days. I, I stayed in the noble silence. I meditated, you know, seven hours of the day or whatever the schedule was. And then, and then I was, I was at that point, I was sort of hooked. And there was a pretty big uh, change in my life where I just had realized that um, the world, you know, drugs and alcohol didn't work material stuff didn't work relationship none none of it worked and um and i became more i think it's part of that uh one of the blessings of being an addict some you know those of you who are addicts know this or some of you do um is that we we can get real impulsive and compulsive and and um you know, vehement about things. And I was like, well, this is it. I'm just going to have to do this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, just like I did weed and booze and crack. And, you know, like I'm, I'm all in, you know, this is giving me a little bit of relief. It's the only place I'm finding any relief. I'm going to take it seriously. And so then, you know, same year I went to another retreat and then another, and I started meditating pretty much every day and going to the meditation groups uh, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, whatever I could plug into of, of community. In those other, in those early years of community, I had such a difficult time and I was in AA, 12 steps, still am. Um, but I had such a difficult time in Buddhism because I didn't, I didn't feel mirrored by the teachers or the community. I didn't see any of my people around. Uh, in AA, I loved it. In 12-step, I would go AA and NA. It was great because there's a bunch of people like me. The fellowship of 12-step of recovery was like, these are my people. Not all of them, but at least some of them were my people. Um, but they were talking about a Judeo-Christian theistic worldview that I didn't like. It didn't make sense to me um you know this higher power god powerlessness stuff buddhism was speaking this philosophy and practice that was like oh no this shit makes sense but my people and community is over here in the 12 step and in the punk scene and motorcycle tattoo world whatever like these are my people but they're not they don't understand the dharma and then there's these people over here that understand the dharma but they like terrible music <laughs> they have bad fashion and they thought the same thing about me. They're like, who's this kid with the bad fashion? <laughs> My experience of progress and meditation was very gradual. Even though I um, really committed and said, I'm going to sit every day, I'm going to go to retreats and I'm going to attend the groups and um, my suffering didn't 
decrease quickly. My practice, you know, took off, but you know, the self-centered anger, fear, uh, continued. And I, you know, just, I would just sit with it. Um, I still hated being uncomfortable, but I would just sit there and hate being uncomfortable. It's not like I'm, you know, just going to be compassionate. I heard that, but I didn't know how to do it. And so I just sat there and was uncomfortable. Um, that first 10 years um, of meditation practice in my late teens, early 20s, or, you know, all, all, the, all through my 20s, uh, slowly, you know, after a couple of years, I've, I've said this a lot, it's true in my experience, that uh, mindfulness made sense to me. The first noble truth made sense to me. I, I loved Buddhism because I was like, okay, there, it's the truth. There is suffering. Yes, I'm suffering. I can relate to this. I love that the Buddha started with acknowledging the suffering. And mindfulness, oh, this works. It's practical. Pay attention. Try to let go. And then, you know, really early on, I started to hear loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And I was so skeptical. I was like, wait a minute. Mindfulness makes sense. Suffering makes sense. Now you got to be kind. I'm pretty sure the hippies slipped this in. You know, like. Oh. And I would do the loving kindness and the simple three phrases that I learned that I still practice that I teach, which are, uh, may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I be free from suffering. And I, in the early, those first couple of years of taking it seriously, I couldn't even um, really be sincere in the phrases. Like I would say it, but internally I would feel like, I don't mean this, I don't deserve this, I don't, uh, I'm not feeling kind, I'm totally faking it fake it you know till you make it kind of thing um but i, would, I was sincere enough and committed enough that I, I kept doing it and it took a couple of years before i started to feel it thanks for tuning into the podcast this is noah levine founder of against the stream and refuge recovery if you feel moved to leave a donation there's a link in the show notes